everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and there has been a big week of legal news. We're doing a special episode. I'm going to sit down and try and explain in plain English what just happened. I'm going to talk about four things, and the first three all relate to January 6th. And so the very first one deals with the fact that the January 6th House Select Committee has subpoenaed the former president. We knew this was coming. They voted publicly to do it. We're going to talk about what his options are. Second, the sentencing of former White House advisor Steve Bannon for, you guessed it, contempt of Congress for failure to comply with a subpoena that was issued by that same House Select Committee. Third, we're going to talk about a federal judge finding that is more likely than not that Trump and one of his attorneys, John Eastman, engaged in a crime related to thwarting the peaceful transfer of power. And then finally, something unrelated to January 6th, we're going to talk about the fact that Trump was deposed in a defamation case that was brought by journalist E. Jean Carroll. With that, let's get going. First, the January 6th House Select Committee subpoenas the former president. They said they need to hear from him. They said, look, you are really at the epicenter of this investigation into violence that occurred at the Capitol on January 6th and attempts to thwart the peaceful transfer of power. And they have said in so many ways, we have interviewed hundreds of witnesses. We've gone through thousands of documents. We need to now hear from the former president. They played video and audio showing other people around Trump pleading the Fifth Amendment or just ignoring congressional subpoenas. And they've said, this is why we really need to hear from the former president. Now, what are his options here? Well, one option is that he could just comply, but I think that's very unlikely given past experience. Another option is that he could comply and plead the Fifth Amendment. Basically, he could walk in there and say, I'm asserting my right against self-incrimination. That also feels pretty unlikely, and I think he would in some ways view doing that in a public form as an admission of guilt. Now, the last options all deal with him basically just ignoring the subpoena, saying, yeah, I'm not going to comply. At that point, the House Select Committee really has a choice. They can try and go to court to enforce that subpoena, but there probably isn't time to do that. Let's remember that this House Select Committee will really no longer exist in December when there's going to be a new House of Representatives, a new makeup, and maybe Republicans will be in control of the House. So what else could the Select Committee do? They could actually refer the case to the Department of Justice for a criminal prosecution based on contempt of Congress. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's because that's exactly what happened in the Steve Bannon case. So that brings us to our second big topic here. Now, Steve Bannon, of course, famously was one of Trump's early advisors, very publicly known as one of his chief advisors. He was subpoenaed by the House Select Committee to try and obtain more information about what was known and what people thought was likely to happen and what people intended to happen on January 6th. Now, 
Bannon just refused to comply. He was convicted in July of two counts of contempt of Congress, one for ignoring a subpoena asking for testimony, another for ignoring a subpoena asking for documents. Now, the Department of Justice asked for a fine of $200,000, and the sentencing guidelines in terms of prison time in this case indicated about one month to six months. So what actually happened here is that Judge Nichols sentenced Bannon to four months in prison and a $6,500 fine. Now, four months in prison is not nothing. So is Bannon going to serve this? I think eventually he will. But what the judge here did is he stayed the sentence pending an appeal. So Bannon is not going to serve the sentence until he has exhausted all of his appeals. That could easily take months. So don't look for Steve Bannon to be inside of a federal prison anytime soon. Let's stay with the January 6th House Select Committee and their work for one more topic. We're also now going to talk about the fact that the House Select Committee has subpoenaed documents from one of Trump's attorneys, John Eastman. And what they're basically asking is for emails that he sent and received during a certain time period. John Eastman said, no, I don't have to comply. I'm covered by the attorney-client privilege and the attorney work product privilege because I was serving as a counsel, as an attorney at the time. Now, normally that would be the end of the story, but there's something called the crime fraud exception that applies to those privileges. And really, really broadly, what it says is, if you talk to an attorney in an attempt to try and commit a crime, and you're trying to get advice from that attorney in order to commit a crime or a fraud, you don't get the protection of the attorney-client privilege or the attorney-work product privilege. And that's basically exactly what this federal judge, Judge Carter, said in this case. So Eastman said, I don't have to comply, attorney-client privilege. The judge went through these emails and he said, Actually, I think the crime fraud exception applies. Now, this might also sound familiar to you because, in fact, back in March, this same judge had said when ruling on a very similar issue that Trump and Eastman, quote, launched a campaign to overturn a Democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. So basically, this is... Judge Carter continuing to say, and I've looked at additional emails here, and I think the crime fraud exception applies. Basically based on what? The emails at issue kind of illustrate two big conclusions according to Judge Carter's ruling here. The first set of documents show that Trump signed a verification that's under oath in December of 2020. And he claimed that in Fulton County, Georgia, there were over 15,000 voters who were improper voters, 15,000 votes that should not have been counted because they were cast by dead people or felons or unregistered voters. Now, the problem for Trump, as Judge Carter noted, is that the emails show that he knew those numbers were wrong. And what Carter concluded here is, quote, the emails are sufficiently related to and in furtherance of a conspiracy to defraud the United States. 
What about the second theme here, the second set of documents? According to Carter's decision, they show that Trump's goal in filing a lot of this post-election litigation in swing states was just to delay the certification of the Electoral College results, not actually to obtain real legal relief because there was no real legal relief that you could get here. And these emails matter, again, because they completely undercut Trump's out-of-court statements that there was some sort of massive voter fraud. Now, the bottom line here is that Trump really shouldn't and potentially can't get away with lying in legal filings the same way he gets away with lying when he's not in court. So Judge Carter's ruling is based on a different standard than we use in criminal cases. His ruling is based on a conclusion that is more likely than not that Trump and Eastman engaged in these crimes. The Department of Justice, if they do bring an indictment, they will obviously have to show that there's a violation of a federal statute and that there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But this is still a big ruling. It's still stunning. And it still provides the Department of Justice with a bit of a roadmap here. Now, final topic, again, exiting January 6th for a minute, that we're going to talk about this defamation suit that was filed by journalist E. Jean Carroll. And E. Jean Carroll claimed that Donald Trump raped her back in the 1990s. Now, what was the former president's response to that? While he was president, his response in part was, she's not my type. That denial, of course, suggests that being Trump's type somehow dictates whether or not he would rape somebody. He also said it never happened. Carol sued Trump for those statements, for those denials, basically saying they were defamatory. What happened this week is that the judge who's overseeing the case said that Trump had to sit for a deposition on Wednesday, which he did. Of course, a reminder that depositions are under oath. Now, a little bit more background in this case. E. Jean Carroll is represented by a really famous litigator, Robbie Kaplan. She successfully advocated for the demise of the Defense of Marriage Act, which ultimately led to the court's decision saying that same-sex marriage is a fundamental right and that states can't ban same-sex marriage. That was just a little bit of background on Robbie Kaplan. In this case, she's representing E. Jean Carroll. Carroll will have to show for a defamation case that Trump made a false statement of fact, that he knew or recklessly disregarded the fact that the statement was false, and that the statement caused injury to Carroll's reputation. That, of course, means that if Trump is telling the truth here, that he didn't rape Carol, that he doesn't know her, that that's a complete defense to defamation. So in this way, defamation cases are kind of a backdoor way of trying to litigate a sexual assault or a rape, obviously in a civil case, not in a criminal setting. There's one more wrinkle here, potentially for Carol, and that's that Trump made these statements. He denied the rape while he was president. And there's this federal law called the Westfall Act, and it provides that the federal government should defend its employees against certain civil suits that arise from their employment if 
the actions that the employees took are within the scope of his office or employment. And in this case, not only that the federal government steps in as the defendant, but it would lead to dismissing the charges. So if the Westfall Act did apply, it would mean that Carroll loses and Trump wins in this case. What are the two legal questions here under the Westfall Act? The first is whether or not the president is considered to be an employee of the government. And an appellate court said, yes, we think he is an employee of the government when he's president. The second is whether he was acting in the scope of that employment when he said that Carol was not his type and that he didn't rape her. At this point, what we have is a question pending. We have the D.C. Court of Appeals that is looking at that. We don't have a decision from them. Now, I would, of course, say that if that type of statement falls within the scope of a government employee's employment, it's hard to see what would fall outside of the scope of someone's employment. But here's the reason why actually the Westfall Act maybe doesn't apply now. That's because Last week, right before Trump had to sit for the deposition, he basically re-upped all of his statements. So on Truth Social, that's his social media site that frankly often contains everything but truth, he again denied the claims that he raped Carol. He reiterated the statements that were at the heart of the case. And the problem, of course, for him is that he's no longer present. So he no longer has the protection of the Westfall Act. And... E. Jean Carroll can amend her complaint and I think say, look, he said it again. He's no longer president. So the Westfall Act doesn't apply. Now, what happened in this case? We know that Trump sat for a deposition on Wednesday. We don't know what happens other than the fact that he sat for the deposition. There's not been much reporting in terms of what happened. But we do know this isn't really the end of the road for Trump and Carroll either way, because New York law has changed. And there's a new law that gives adult victims of sexual assault an additional year starting in November, an additional year to file civil suits, even if it were otherwise beyond the statute of limitations for a sexual assault claim. So that's also why this deposition matters, because what Trump said or didn't say could also be used in that next case. Now, what if Trump pleads the fifth? What if he says, I'm not answering? That actually can be used in a civil case against him. And so while he absolutely can assert his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, in some circumstances, a jury can use that decision and make a negative inference from it. So that's all a long way of saying this was a big deal. Trump sat for a deposition. We don't know exactly what happened in the defamation case, but we know that this case will likely continue and that another case by E. Jean Carroll will also be filed under New York's new law that gives adult victims of sexual assault basically another year to file those particular cases. So I think and hope that brings you up to date on the really big legal developments from last week. 
Please, as always, really subscribe, rate, and review. And please let me know if there's something you'd like to hear more about. You can contact me on social media at Levinson Jessica. And we wish all of you a great day. Thank you.